0: Star Trek Discovery Season 2, Episode 4, and Oval for Charon," is over, but we are just getting started here on Post-Show Recaps. My name is Jessica Leese and with me this week is my brand new number one for the rest of the season, the uninsultable Mike Bloom. Mike Bloom, how are you? I'm doing pretty well. I am heavily
1: insultable. If you read any comment sections for any podcast I have the pleasure of appearing on, uh, I'll admit, Jess... Feeling a bit under the weather this week, though, based on this episode, I can't tell if that's a good thing or a bad thing.
0: Well, if you let the Saurian sneeze on you, that's probably okay, but if it turns out that your species is just undergoing some weird kind of puberty, I can't help you.
1: True, though, is it a puberty that lets you, uh, you know, almost go through a metamorphosis to become a a new powerful form? Maybe the, the ends justify the means.
0: Well, yeah, you know. You gotta go through some rough stuff, and then you emerge twice as powerful as before. I think this is a very interesting time in Saru's life.
1: Yes, very much so. I, I don't know. Again, we don't know how old he is, so maybe we can call this his like midlife crisis or his quarter life crisis. We got some additional Kelpian mythology to build into the short treks episode that we saw, which corners. A lot of questions and speculation. Uh, I'm happy to appear back on this episode. No shade to point of light from last week, but it feels like that positive classic Star Trek juju that we were putting out into the universe two episodes ago sort of came back around for this episode.
0: Is this going to be one of those things like with Star Trek movies where all of the even-numbered ones are good and all of the odd-numbered ones are eh?
1: I mean, the, the premiere wasn't terrible. It was just more action packed. I will say this one, there's a lot of fun stuff in here, but this might be for my money. I don't know how you feel about this, Jess, the most fast paced episode of Star Trek Discovery I think I've ever seen. There are so many plot points crammed in here that I had to go back and watch scenes multiple times because so many things were going on. I mean, ironically enough, the one episode that has the ship in a complete set of stasis where it's not moving had the most going on around it.
0: Is it fair to say that almost every episode of Star Trek is a bottle episode? Uh,
1: that's true. I I mean a ship in a bottle episode, as it were. I don't know, I guess if they technically touch down on some sort of surface of something, does does that not make it a bottle episode anymore? Are we out of the bottle then?
0: Yeah, I think you get out of the bottle if you beam down to a planet, but other than that, and we spend so much time on this ship, I think maybe just because that's the budget they have, but.
1: Yeah. Are, are we, are we going the realm of like the rom-coms of the 2000s with like Discovery as a character herself?
0: <laughs> well, we did, you know, this is a character that got its own short trek.
1: Yeah, actually, that's very true. And it's actually a pretty big character in this episode, considering that I think she has a, You know, maybe the uh, Rosetta Stone got a bit broken by the sphere uh, in the ship, considering that one of the many plot points this episode is a malfunction in the uh, in the universal translator. So I'm hoping just by the end of this, uh, you know, I'm not speaking uh, uh, Sanskrit and you're speaking Mandarin.
0: You know, I really thought hard about starting the episode off in another language just to mess with you. But, yeah, you,
1: you really are the Saru of this pair by comparison. I (laughs) basically represent the rest of Discovery on the whole while just staring at you like blank eyed. If you try to talk to me in a different language outside of the 11 years of Spanish I took that I've now completely gone out of my head in lieu of Star Trek facts.
0: (laughs) Well, I think, I think Saru speaks for all of us polyglots when he looks out with disdain and says, what didn't any of you take a language?
1: Yeah, and let says something, again, coming from the fact that Saru, uh, you know, and maybe it's because he sort of had to overextend himself knowing where he came from, uh, but he really, you know, made an effort to be like, look, I'm the only Kelpian here. Uh, I didn't have anybody to begin with. I was inspired uh, to sort of work hard by this whole refugee experience that I had, and I'm the one that's learning the language. How badly is that show on you people who have, uh, you know, grown up so privileged by comparison? Immigrants, we get the job done. Exactly. Again, we did not get Saru rapping. Uh, I guess you have to watch the carpool karaoke to see that. But that is I think that is the heartbeat going on in this episode. I think this is definitely one of those ones that underlines uh, those big sort of societal messages, especially this idea of like communication through empathy and how the policy of shoot first, ask questions later when it comes to dealing with powers that you might not necessarily understand at first or foreign bodies might not be the best policy.
0: Yeah, I think this has always been a series and a franchise that does that sort of thing extremely well. And it didn't feel preachy at all. It just felt like this is the message they're getting across. And it seems like it makes sense. What did you think about this episode overall? Um, Overall, I thought this was a really fun episode, and I I am with you that it did seem like there was a lot of action here, but this is also an action-packed show in general. I think so many bonkers things have happened. We are, you know, at the beginning of season two, and we've had enough going on to fill like seven seasons of any other Star Trek series. And even this episode alone, I think it's testament to how well they are writing this and how well the actors are doing their jobs that we're able to cram three separate stories that are semi intertwined into one episode and have us feel like we're not getting short shrift to any of those where, you know, no shade to TNG. But the TNG equivalent of this would have been like there'd be one thing happening where the ship systems were shut down and then there'd be some side plot where, Spot, where Data was training Spot the cat to do something.
1: <laughs> yeah, though, I mean, on that note, you say three story lines, but I mean, I feel like you could separate the sphere thing from the universal translator thing. You could throw in the number one thing at the beginning of the episode. Yeah. There was even more going on from that. And I I, I do appreciate their ability, their sort of e- economy of plot as it is to sort of squeeze everything in. And I totally agree that this episode is the most recent one to really indicate to me just how strong the performers are in the show, considering that, like you said, they have to get cross some really complex emotions very quickly. I sort of wanted some room to breathe personally. I would have loved if we had maybe marinated in a couple of plot lines, like if we spent one episode focusing on the, uh, as Pike says, the the Tower of Babel that emerges from Discovery's malfunctioning universal translator. While in engineering, uh, you know, we get the we get Reno and Stamets and Tilly trying to figure out how to open the door. And that all happened in the first half of this episode. It's it's pretty crazy. Uh, so I personally would have liked them to ease up on the gas a tiny bit. But I do understand, you know, they only have 13 episodes this season as opposed to the 15 they had in the first season. And they really seems like they're going to some really ambitious places. So I understand the intention there.
0: Yeah, and I mean, think about the first season where secret Klingon, secret mirror universe person, and person who died in episode one coming back evil is like any one of those three things would have taken an entire season to tell in any other Star Trek world. And they just like, bam, 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 every bonkers theory you can have turned out to be true. That's what I expect out of this series. I I think – I kind of live for that i like the not being able to catch my breath
1: mm, how do you feel about i mean i guess we have some twists we have the may stuff this episode might reveal a nefarious twist on the spore drive than what stamets originally intended in his work but i mean how do you feel about the fact that there isn't really like a big capital t twist that's gone on so far and we're, we're about a third of the way through the season
0: Well, it's interesting. I think the show kind of assumes that we are too smart for capital T twists now. And I think it kind of dangles some of them in front of us. And I want to go, I want to go to the first big thing that I, they really faked me out on this. I did think for a hot second that we were going to lose Saru. Mm,
1: I'll admit I did as well. And I think the 5% of me that did was the 5% of me that is constantly thinking about Jason Isaacs, Captain Lorca, dying, what, two episodes before the finale of season one? You think, like, that's a really awkward place to put in a major character death. It seemed like Discovery season one sort of paved the way to say, like, it doesn't matter if it's episode one, five, or the finale. We're going to throw in random twists that come up along the way. Uh, And I do think that while it would have been horrific for the franchise to kill off saru especially since i'm very excited to see where his character is going when you uh when you see him you know amongst the the verdant uh, uh you know room he has set up and there's about 10 minutes left and him and michael are going on to these long diatribes about how much they love each other uh, you sort of you sort of just take a look and you think oh okay i guess this is happening i guess for me one of the te- te- telltale moments was when michael was helping saru to his room like Everyone stands up and looks at him. Doesn't that feel like usually on a show, one of those fourth wall breaking moments where like the director is implicitly saying that's a wrap for Doug Jones and everyone is applauding on set?
0: Well, absolutely. I think that was one of the moments where it made me start to think, oh, this could really be happening. I'm sure Doug Jones has no shortage of great roles to slip into in the future. He's been in how many Oscar nominated films as creepy character number one. He's going to have plenty of offers if he leaves Star Trek Discovery. And so I did sort of feel that. But I also think this show, the writers on this show are thinking we're in a world where all of you people have probably also watched Game of Thrones. So you all expect that we can, anybody can die at any time. And so we'll just throw it at you. I really don't think we've ever seen a death fake out this good in at any point in Star Trek history. And when, uh, yeah, and when we have killed major characters, which isn't often in the history of the franchise, it's like everybody who follows the show at all kind of knows it's coming because they heard something about the actor leaving
1: mm, or getting arrested for a DUI.
0: Yes, yes, indeed.
1: Uh, <laughs> and I, I guess, I guess, maybe the benefit of. If they decide to kill off Saru, Doug Jones isn't necessarily fired. They could just put on a bunch of makeup on him in a different way and just slip him in. Maybe he could be the new Linus. I think Doug Jones could have a prolific career on Star Trek no matter what he embodies, as long as apparently it's not his own face on screen.
0: So basically the same thing they did to the original actress that's playing Lieutenant Commander Arium.
1: Yeah, exactly. Basically, just, like, make him over. Maybe he could be the new Arium. He could be Arium 3.0. Uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll see if they if they finally decide to do it. I mean, I think that it was... I thought it was very well done, and the scene between Saru and Michael was beautiful. And, you know, when I had the pleasure of attending the red carpet, I think it was uh, Anson Mount told me, it's just like, Doug Jones is doing, like, a, like award-winning work in this season, and this episode, I think is indicative of it, uh, you know, I did have some some wheels turning in my head that I knew Saru or I knew there was going to be a Kaminar centric episode. And you could think, well, if he does die, there could be a Kaminar centric episode where they bring his body back. Uh, so that's not necessarily out of the picture. I think the timing might just be a little awkward because this fake out is done much better than the one you and Rob talked about last week with Lorel holding up the uh, the severed heads of Ash Tyler and the baby <laughs> And it just so happens that these two fall back to back. So I think it's just poor timing uh, that sort of maybe dulled the fake death for me.
0: Yeah. Did it dull it or did it have you thinking, well, they did a big death fake out last week. They can't do two in a row. Mm, That's a good point. It's like when you're watching The Amazing Race and last week was a non-elimination. You expect someone's getting eliminated this week. Yeah, that's
1: true. By the way, speaking of Amazing Race, uh, I'll admit uh i i think that whenever i see may in my head which we've seen may not in my head on my screen uh oh uh that's not good but i for some reason the way she speaks the way she she particularly speaks to tilly i get a lot of 20 vibes personally i don't know if you do
0: <laughs> that's amazing uh, i will now that is for sure yeah
1: like come on Tilly, they move
0: Come on, Tilly, let's go yeah,
1: exactly like it's it's pretty much beat for beat. I absolutely love it that these uh these little mycelial shows that we are covering are being connected via this network, and hopefully there's nothing that is uh killing off the little uh the little spores inside that network, and those connections remain solid.
0: I feel like my whole presence on post show recaps is just held together by fungus.
1: Listen, fungus apparently is the the key to all life, even if one person particularly does not believe in it and just makes jokes about mushrooms on pizza.
0: Yeah, it is true. But before we dive into that whole little bottle episode that was happening within the bottle episode that was happening within the ship, I do want to talk a little bit more about the Kelpian mythology that was blown up here in this non-death of Saru. Mm, The Vahari. Yes, the Vahari, which we were led to believe by from watching the short trek, which I think, okay, kudos to you for, you were the one that said that some of this stuff may come back and some of it was, you know, some of it might turn out to be more canonical than I think. And I said to you, I don't think we're (laughs) going to, We're going to pretend these short treks never actually happened and I will give you money if any of it ever comes up in the series. And I, I guess I, I guess I, I lost that bet because this came up big time. And if you hadn't watched that short trek, you might be even more lost at this point. But, um, yeah, we find out that the, the Vahari, we thought it was a death process and that, you know, you reached the, the terminal. Stage, and then the Baal just come and gather you and take you off to Kelpian Valhalla. But it turns out that this is just a stop on the road. It's not necessarily the end of life. And I think that's really quite weird and it blows apart the whole Kelpian mythology in some weird ways.
1: Right. So, for those of you that might not have seen the short track, which I would recommend, it might be definitely my top half. I don't know if it's my favorite one, but definitely up there. And it's only about like 13 minutes. Uh, but basically, Saru's background as a Kelpian on Kaminar is that his species is a prey for a predator called the Baul. And it's a very ritualistic society, in that basically, Saru's papa, who's, I guess, the head chief priest of this tribe of Kelpians, uh, we see him sort of like, you know, b- bring a bunch of people together. They sit in a big old circle, and then they get zapped up to the Baul ship, where people assume. They get consumed. Uh, and I think there's a lot of questions going around as to, okay, how are these people picked? Is it like a Logan's Run thing where they reach a certain age? Is it a random draw like the lottery? And it seems like from what's being implied here, the Vahari is directly linked to it. Now, I don't know if you, I know you mentioned, you know, uh, puberty beforehand. I don't know if the Vahari is an age-based thing or if it's a condition-based thing. If it's an age-based thing, I don't know what straw you know, Saru's dad drew because he is a quite an old dude hanging out, able to I guess bypass the age restriction that came with that.
0: Yeah, that's that's where I think it's a little fuzzy. It's, it can't be let, that everybody's on an approximate timer where once you reach a certain age, the clock starts ticking because you have very old Kelpians like Saru's dad. So that seems weird to me. That's one thing that. I can't quite figure out. The other thing I can't quite figure out is if it's just that they put all the sick people in the circle to get beamed up to the bowels ship. Why? Why are they a fearful species, and why are they prey? Because we already said the suicide cult aspect of it. Rob and I talked about this where he said the suicide cult aspect of it was really not. That didn't imply that they should be fearful or they should have evolved any fear sensors, but this is even less so. This is like you're not even weeding out the old people and they might be afraid or they might feel like they have some good years left. And you're not randomly selecting people, so they're not all afraid that their number might come up. This is just, oh, you're sick. Go over there and die like you would anyway.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess it's maybe it's more uh, satiating the, like the hypochondriac side that comes with <laughs> fear of like, uh-oh, I got sneezed on the other day. Does that mean I'm going to, co- you know, contract Vahari and I have to get beamed upward? It's a really interesting question, especially when, as you mentioned, Saru sort of breaks the logic of it wide open in that actually Vahari sort of helps a Kelpian change a bit uh, in that, you know, in this very dramatic scene, the big fake-out... Saru asks Michael to cut his threat gangly off. Basically, Saru says, with Vahari, uh, you, they either basically send the people up to get killed by the vowel to essentially save them from the madness that they would succumb to. So, without the vowel around, Saru decides to essentially, you know, c- commit a gra- graceful suicide by having uh, Michael cut off his threat ganglia so that he'll die a painless death. But they sort of... They sort of just retract on their own And I think that that's a wrap on the Threat Ganglia, not Saru. Uh, And it seems like
0: we might be heading for a Saru 2.0, Jess. Yeah, that – well, that could go one of two ways. Like, he could come out and he could be like his best self now, you know, living his Oprah best life after he loses his Threat Ganglia. Or what if – what if Vahari – what if they're not overselling that? What if he – really is going to go crazy. What if we get Dark Saru? What if this is like, he's, what if all the Kelpians are just dormant supervillains and the whole reason the Ba'ul started hunting them and like made them all think that they were going to die anyway is because if you let the Kelpians mature and get to that next phase, they start taking over everything and killing everyone.
1: I'll do you one further here because I saw this theory being bandied about a lot in the past week. What if the Kelpians post-Fahari are the Ba'ul? Oh, I have
0: heard that one as well.
1: It's an interesting theory, because I guess the thought would be essentially that these Kelpians that get beamed aboard, they're not they are not there to be culled and sacrificed. They're sort of welcomed into this retirement community, as it were. Uh, and maybe it does involve them going a bit mad, like you said. But either way, I think it promises some really interesting directions for Saru's character, which... I'm excited for. I think Doug Jones does a fantastic job, but I'll admit it was getting a little, little samey for me. This idea of like the the fearful yet logical Spock esque first officer, especially considering that we're bringing Spock onto the show, <laughs> there needed to be some character deviation. So if this means we're going to be seeing Uh Saru's like Big D energy for the rest <laughs> of the season. <laughs> Whether it culminates in a big murder spree or not, I, I'm excited for it personally.
0: He's got big ganglia energy. <laughs>
1: yeah, not anymore, though. Hopefully, I don't know, the Terrans love to eat the ganglia. So uh, I don't know how, if they ever run into Emperor Giorgio, we'll see how pissed she is at that that one opportunity is now gone.
0: Yeah, and I can't imagine that when the, the ganglia fell off, they could just collect them because they're probably like, they get all chewy and it's no good.
1: Yeah, exactly. You have like a. I think you have a good like window, like when you uh, if you lose a digit, you can like put it on ice, and then you have a certain amount of time bef- uh, before it sort of you know loses any chance of getting reattached. I can imagine that as good as the medical staff is, uh, I don't think it was necessarily priority number one or general order one to uh, to get those things on ice.
0: Yeah, and medical staff really kind of didn't seem to know what to do with them anyway. They're just like, okay, go back to your Project Genesis dorm room and <laughs> die already. Yeah,
1: do we think that, like, it has Saru been written up by Starfleet before? Does it seem pretty illegal to
0: essentially be growing your own stash in your quarters? Well, especially since Rob and I have talked about this, where every single Starfleet room we've ever seen up to this point is, like, completely sterile, except they get one personal item like they're going on the Survivor Island.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think we need like the Starfleet Marie Kondo to go through and essentially tell Saru, like, do these plans, do they spark joy in you?
0: Well, I think they do spark joy. It's probably why he does it. Like his luxury item is his hanging gardens of Babylon.
1: Yeah, that's true. Though maybe they're I don't know, maybe they're holograms. I'm not entirely sure, but it was it was beautifully done because it also, you know, it's it's nice to hear that Saru, who is sort of, I think, flagellating himself a bit this episode with talking about how he was so focused on becoming a Starfleet officer that he obscured his own alienness. You can take the Kelpian out of Kaminar, but you can't take Kaminar out of the Kelpian, it seems, because it does seem when we cut to his quarters that it seems like we're sort of in the lush, you know, uh, fl- flora of Keminar. Uh, it seems like, no matter what, he wanted to feel like he was at home, even when he, it was his home away from home.
0: Can you imagine what that must have been like when he was an ensign and he had to have a roommate?
1: Oh, my God. Well, considering that, I don't know, maybe he since Tilly got sort of her own uh, special dorm room for a while because of her snoring, maybe they're like they got complaints about his uh his frequent plant growing. And so they just sort of put him in his own little cell to deal with, though. Like you said, I think Starfleet just doesn't know how to deal with Kelpian, So they might have just done that in the first place.
0: And that's, that's so fan fiction too. That so, there's this alien race that's so alien that Starfleet really doesn't know what to do with them. Oh, they're so special. And it's like, you got like people with metal on their face. You got someone that we're not even sure if they're a robot. You've got a lizard that puts mucus on people when he sneezes. I feel like the Kelpians are not that complicated. But yeah. That's d- just
1: me. You think the biggest thing is the threat ganglia, but everything else sounds, you know, advantageous. Speaking of, uh, lizard stuff, how did you feel about not only the return of Linus, but an actual Linus speaking the standard tongue?
0: Well, I liked, I liked hearing from Linus a little bit. And I like that we're getting to have a lower decks moment pretty much every episode now. That's kind of fun. And I really like his energy. I like his spirit. Um, His one line where I had a cold last week and it sucked. You know, er, any other Star Trek show would have just let that moment be a random throwaway moment. And now they're going to bring it back and lampshade it um, and actually give him something to do. I thought that was kind of fun.
1: Yeah, this this iteration of Star Trek feels like it has particularly witty bridge repartee. Maybe it's because you have Pike sitting in the captain's chair and he is so jokey with this type of stuff, with his one-liners. But it seems like more than a, uh, some other ones I can think of, it's usually very serious out on the bridge. But here they're sort of throwing lines back and forth to each other. There's a lot of comedy sort of baked into the uh, the Universal Translator shenanigans that happened in the first third of this episode. So like you said, you know, they're slowly building out these tertiary characters. And I'm glad that, you know, the actor who played Linus got to actually say some lines in a language that his parents at home would understand.
0: Yeah, that was that was pretty sweet. Um, and at the point where the universal translators went haywire, you had to feel the most bad for him because I don't know if even Saru got around speaking Sarian. Well, that's the thing. Again, it would have been interesting to
1: have an entire episode. I feel like this would totally be like a next generation thing of like one whole episode, whether you call it a gimmick episode, what have you, where the universal translator is on the fritz uh, and you have people speaking in a bunch of different languages, I thought it was a really interesting wrinkle when they sort of put up the backup universal translator, but only the people who speak earth English will be able to understand each other. I thought we were going to totally go off onto another path where like people like Linus or other, you know, uh, other people from different species or different planets on the ship just have a, a fundamental miscommunication, which seems to be the theme of the episode. They resolve it pretty quickly, but if that's to be believed, poor Linus was just standing around not understanding a word of what anyone else was saying this episode.
0: Yeah, I would have liked it a little better if there had been like some aspect of that solution, which again, they resolved it about five minutes into the episode. But if if some aspect of that solution had relied on him, I think it would have brought it back around a little bit more elegantly. Mm,
1: that's true. And again, it would, it would have built out that character a bit more. I think, again, I think it just speaks to the amount of stuff that they're packing in here that Something that would ordinarily take an entire episode to build an epi- something around happened in 20 minutes here uh but hopefully there'll be some more opportunities to revisit that because that was a nice little uh fun moment it does make me wonder in uh other countries when they do like the international translations of these episodes exactly how they do that
0: yeah it's fun because we got a good 15 languages spoken in little dribs and drabs here. And I, I do want to point out, though, that they did kind of do this episode in Deep Space Nine. Um It was one of the very the, early... Was it a Japanese episode? Um No, it was an episode where they didn't... The Universal Translators were okay. Actually, they did have another episode where there was a species that spoke a language so weird the Universal Translators couldn't translate it, which seems to contradict what the Universal Translator does in this episode. Mm. But... We'll get to that. But they had an episode where everybody got a virus that gave them aphasia. Oh. And so they would just like start speaking nonsense to each other. And when none of them could could communicate with each other, Odo the shapeshifter was the only person it didn't affect. And then he had to solve the problem for everybody.
1: Interesting. Because the other thing that this uh, rem- episode reminded me of, the sphere stuff in particular and the – you know, the uh, the confrontation that involved on the bridge, it was very reminiscent to me of Darmok from Next Generation. Oh, yeah, In sure. terms of, like, here's this thing that you can't necessarily understand, and initially you think it's hostile, but it means absolutely no harm, and it sort of speaks volumes as to the way that we approach things and the initial assumptions that we make and how that might incorrectly inform what the true intentions are.
0: Or there was another next-gen episode where there was a giant creature that they thought was going to kill them, and then they just needed its help to... It needed their help to give birth.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that now. Yeah. I mean, basically, this 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 episode definitely falls into, like, the Star Trek bucket of episodes of just, like, big, giant thing of death. You know? Even though this thing uh is it's, it's necessarily causing death, it's dying on its own, I think it still falls into this category of hey, here's this big thing. We can't move. We think it's going to kill us. And essentially, it's a big race against the clock for Michael and Saru to figure out exactly what it wants and present it to Captain Pike in such an accommodating way that he decides not to blow it to smithereens.
0: Yeah, and I, I feel like that's very Star trek And this episode, I think we could point to many examples of, you know, horrible entity threatens to destroy the ship but turns out to be benign. That's that's pretty tropey actually.
1: Yeah, not only benign but benevolent as well and yes. that it apparently provides the galaxy's version of the dead sea scrolls. So it just sort of had a big backlog of 100,000 years of history.
0: It was it's Tuesdays with Mori, the <laughs> orb edition.
1: It's Tuesdays with Orby.
0: <laughs> yes. Yes. I I mean
1: that's that's pretty remarkable. Like I feel like if these if this gang did not already have the Starfleet Medal of Honor, they should get like something else on top of that cuz that is just that's a
0: huge breakthrough. Well, granted, we did not see what any of it said. It could be like 999,000 years of uh, Kirk and Spock slash fic.
1: <laughs> That's true. We don't exactly know. Maybe it's like a real trashy sphere. It was just looking up like all the it was reading all the pop culture rags and like the the, the, uh, the tabloids. So it knows all the celebrity gossip from 100,000 years back.
0: It's It's all of its posting to television without pity. Is, like, a whole big chunk of time in there, like, the whole time the website was on, like, the orb was posting his thoughts on, like, who America's next top model should be.
1: I mean, I don't want to get too salacious here, but of the insurmountable amount of data that made its way into Discovery, how much of it do you think was porn?
0: (laughs) (laughs) What does orb porn look like? I don't want to know. (laughs) Yeah, that... That is more than likely. I, I think you get a lot of thoughts that are not necessarily going to help anybody, except maybe, like, orb anthropologists wanting to know how they copulate.
1: Yeah, and that's the thing. Like, I think maybe if Pike had realized in retrospect that he essentially had to, in a very symbolic gesture, let down his walls, you know— Uh, put down his arms in order to essentially divert all his power to this communication system to take all the information. If if he found out that the lion's share of it was uh, some some nice old orb porn, I I don't necessarily know if he would have had the same response to the situation.
0: Or what if it's one of those situations where they don't even know if it is porn? Like, they're reading it and they're like, this could be poetry. Or it could be really dirty, but since we don't really know anything about the orb, it's really hard to tell
1: right right like how a lot of ancient texts uh you know get into some very lewd details uh but you can't really judge it because it's from a hundred thousand years ago so uh who knows the you know the orb is a compendium of everything that exists in the universe apparently and it is not spared any sort of uh instance whether or not it's appropriate for all audiences
0: i guess i'm just glad they had enough hard drive space to back that all up to the cloud
1: I mean, I guess so. Or the nebula, as it were. I mean, I guess is there is that a thing? I'm assuming so, because it's the 23rd century. But I guess after uh, after Disco got that information, they just ported it right over to to Starfleet because I mean, otherwise they couldn't really do anything considering how much memory this thing is probably taking up. in it's, uh, you know, Disco's central RAM.
0: Yeah, I I can't even imagine, like, they must have had to be pulling that behind the dark matter brick that they're already pulling behind them.
1: And I think that, I guess on that note, I mean, the big stakes that come into this as well, and the reason why Pike wants more than ever to, like, Put the, get the move on in breaking out of this sphere's, uh you know, orbit aside from it blowing up, is that he, Sp- Spock has happened to make its way around the sphere without being noticed by the sphere. It really picked out Disco as the one to impart all its knowledge onto, but, uh, yeah this was yet another stepping stone in the eventual trip across the shore to get to Spock, but I would say of the four episodes so far, this was the most minimal Spock-based episode thus far.
0: Yeah, I love that every episode is like there's just a little tidbit of like another clue. They're they're chasing him like he's Carmen San Diego. And like this time he dropped the warrant or something.
1: Yeah. Th- uh, yeah, they haven't found the location yet, but they have found the warrant. I mean, I'm gonna make a prediction here. I feel like I feel like we're gonna get our Spock sighting by episode seven. That's my prediction. Uh I know people might think later, considering that, like you said, it's really dripping out, but not to get into the trailer stuff too much, but there is a good amount of Spock scenes in there. That makes me think if this was like disco season one, that would be where they'd take their mid season break and then come back into a Spock focused second half of the season. But I- I'm hopeful that in the first half of the season, we'll get at least one whiff of Ethan Peck's beard.
0: Yeah, I think that seems likely. I think we hit the midpoint having seen Spock. I would say we hit that midpoint, and maybe the last thing we see in an episode is Spock, like, coming on board and saying, hello, sister, and, like, raising his eyebrows, and that's scene.
1: I love this. Again, making your Amazing Race comparison, Spock is the Phil Keegan of Discovery.
0: He, he really is. Um, I mean,
1: he's got I, those crazy eyebrows. And just like the Amazing Race, they have to find Phil. They need to find Spock. They just don't have—the clues are more indecipherable than an Amazing Race clue.
0: Yeah, every time they pick up a clue, they open it, it takes them to another clue. It's it's true. And like this episode, you had to either fight the orb or fight the blob. It's a roadblock. Yeah. It, it, each of these things has its own pros and cons. <laughs> it's such a grand unified theory.
1: I, I really I, I so. think I think this is all connected. I mean, it's CBS after all, so I wouldn't be surprised that this all ends up being a big crossover episode.
0: Yeah, I think so. Well, And if, or if it doesn't like spawn a million more spinoffs, like we get, you know, we're getting a lower decks. We're getting a section 31. We're getting a Picard. I think the next one is going to be a Star Trek reality show where teams of two are racing across the galaxy for a million strips of Latinum.
1: I think that works. Or uh, maybe like an amazing race or a, a Star Trek mockumentary show. Where it's like, ooh, uh, let's talk about, let's see what's going on. On I was, I was about to say Starbase 5, but they they got their own stuff to deal with right now, but just some random Starbase. It would basically be like Deep Space Nine, but sort of done in the mockumentary style where they're talking to some sort of android who's receiving all this communications via a
0: camera. It's a sort of modern family meets Star Trek. Yeah, exactly.
1: You know, it's it's going off the air. So again, this if energy is neither created nor destroyed, it needs to be displaced somewhere else.
0: Well, I think there's got to be some kind of physics theory that states that all the energy that's going out into the universe is coming back into Star Trek. <laughs>
1: yeah, all things just direct to
0: Star Trek at the end of the day. Maybe eventually all of the shows on TV will just be Star Trek something. Listen, I will not complain. It's just, it's taking over. It's like, it's like a big gooey ball of May that's just absorbing everything.
1: So I think that, Stan has discussed this on this show, are we just all going to be under... The, uh, the nomenclature of calling this blob May, because they never actually decided on a name besides that.
0: Yeah, I think, I think that's where we're headed with it. Um, I don't think we're gonna give it some fancy new name at this point. I think they've already decided that they're gonna call it May because if they gave it another name right now, it wouldn't stick. So,
1: like I said, I, I thought this was a really fun, Storyline. I'm so glad they brought Jet Reno back and that uh, Tignataro is doing just a great job of it, because I came to the realization during this particular storyline, Jess, I think Jet Reno is the McCoy of Star Trek Discovery.
0: You just blew my mind, Mike. Just because, like, all
1: the sarcastic responses to basically everything that was going on, even in the most dire situations, just screams deforest kelly to me and even though she technically predates him here that that's the very first thing that i thought of
0: oh my god yeah it's true and that's it's an energy that we have been missing in a lot of star trek we don't have enough sarcasm
1: completely agree everyone everyone else seems you know pretty earnest with maybe some hints of sarcasm but she just oozes it like she basically got infested with her own sarcasm spore Uh, Considering the argument that she gets in with Stamets, she even has her own like reference here where she says, you know, uh, I'm a grease monkey, not a farmer.
0: (laughs) Yeah, she's uh, she's got spore chasm. (laughs) What did you think
1: about uh, the anti spore propaganda being put out by uh, by Jet Reno here and Stamets response to it?
0: This felt a little bit forced, if we're being honest. It's like uh, it it felt like the two of them were about to go on uh, that what was that short-lived show on MTV where they traded insults? Oh, like uh, Yo Mama? Yes, they were about to go on Yo Mama, and they were all—they were both sitting in their quarters for a week, coming up with things they could say to each other.
1: Yeah, Yo Mushroom coming to uh, your, your airwaves this fall. This was—this felt more like this particular exchange felt like one of those things where the characters weren't necessarily being. The characters if that makes sense where it felt like more they were serving like vessels for the messages uh you know where Jess coming across being like hey you know what uh dilithium is reliable it's good and it's not as weird new age funky as the mushrooms are and sam is coming forward saying you know what the reason why i came up with this in the first place is that it's clean it's renewable it's efficient those things might not necessarily be true by the end of this episode but it was a weird Two minute exchange that I guess if you needed a refresher on what the Spore Drive is in comparison to Warp, I guess you get it right there.
0: Yeah. I did like the point where Stamets just kind of loses his mind at her and then she just waits a beat and looks at him and says, you know, that's exactly how someone who doesn't know how to make a good comeback would react. Yeah. Uh,
1: again, I don't know how many like Tig. Uh, TIG mannerisms got thrown in there I know that Alex Kursman said that this part was specifically written for her but I mean she seems so down to earth as weird as that is to say to the point where she's like fixing things with pieces of gum like she I mean this is the person who fashioned her own life system out of these spare parts found around uh, you know a ship I think that she's totally fine with just getting down and dirty she is the one who suggests using that badass drill later on, and I love comparing that to the fussier and more by-the-books Stamets approach to things.
0: Yeah, although I am kind of shocked that people were not more concerned about the fact that two people that are tripping on psilocybin decide they're going to trip on a third person. Yeah. I I think people should be a little more concerned about that, is all. And even the show didn't really treat it like it was any big thing.
1: I mean, it was we've talked about this before just when you know i covered orphan black and i'm not a huge fan of like the body horror stuff i remember i was watching this with angela my uh my trekkie wife and she's like are they are they really gonna do that are they really gonna do that so i'm happy they mercifully you know gave the reverse angle to not necessarily show it being done and that it just got soldered up really quickly because it's a very disturbing thing to think about the more you ruminate on it
0: yeah it it is it's sort of like the End of Hannibal, uh, the The sequel to Silence of the Lambs. Not not the NBC show? Not the NBC shows. Is that what that's called? I, I can't even remember. I saw it in the theater and I haven't thought about it since until this very moment.
1: Yeah, uh, the sequel is Hannibal and the prequel is a red angel, a red dragon, not to be confused with I was just thinking about the red angel on Star Trek trying to connect everything in another <laughs> mycelial way.
0: <laughs> well, there's a crossover we do not need.
1: No, definitely not. Please do not put a cannibal on disco, please.
0: Yeah, we've, we've got a, we've got enough 20th century pop culture references without going to the well of Thomas Harris.
1: Yeah, I guess this was, a this was asked on Twitter, Jess. What would your <laughs> implant song be you, that you would try to sing to, to calm yourself down before something gets drilled into your head?
0: Um, well, my implant song, I imagine it ha, it would have to be a Beatles song. Um, we are, Actually no, it would be it would be something by wings mm. because I'm not even cool enough to have it be a Beatles song.
1: Yeah, I was thinking uh Good Morning Starshine from the musical Hair, because it's <laughs> it's it's like it's calm, it's lulling, it has that space connection. I I can't tell if it's so on the nose it's cute or it's stupid that No no cor- no
0: Here's your problem with that, Mike, though. You'd get to the point, you'd be like, Libby, club, gloobie, Nobby, Nobby and everybody'd be like, oh my god, we're losing him! Yeah,
1: oh, we went too far, we went too far, pull it back, pull it back. <laughs> uh, but the fact that that Tilly song is a David Bowie song, it, I can't tell if it's, like, super cheeky in a good way or a bad way.
0: Well, I just have to come back to the thought that why did all pop culture for these people stop in the 20th century? And in fact, we got within the span of 2 minutes we got a Prince reference and a Bowie reference. So are we to understand that all good music died in 2016 and there will never be good music again? I wonder if it's something like
1: maybe in 21st century Earth which is apparently destroyed by pollution which I I think makes sense given the state that we're in nowadays. Uh maybe what happened is like all the other forms of music got dissipated. Maybe in a currency-less economy, musicians did not feel the need to become rich and famous. So the professional music scene is kaput. As such, the only thing we can rely on are these very, very vintage records from artists from the 1970s through 1990s. And that's what caused such a popular boon between the Bowie between like, you know, the house esque music that played during the, uh, during the big, uh, Harry mud time travel episode between the Betty Boop from thousands <laughs> of years, hundreds of years in the future in the short treks episode. Uh, yeah, there, I mean, I guess it's, it's fun to know that we are essentially living in an era that will be idolized even m- millennia down the line.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I was going to totally buy it in the first reboot Star Trek movie that Kirk couldn't find a better song to blast while he's driving really fast than Sabotage. Like, maybe they never wrote a better song than that. But we keep coming back to this idea that the only good music stopped being made after about 1999.
1: Yeah, I I and I think that's very indicative of the people that are in the writer's room of Star Trek Discovery as well.
0: It's true. Like, I was at a bar earlier today, and we are listening to the music, and we are like, oh, whoever is putting this playlist together in this bar is our age. Because it was all the music from, like, 1993 to 2000.
1: Yeah, exactly. Like, I think if we see Tilly undergo some, like, traditional millennial problems over the course of season two, maybe we'll think that the writers' room might have skewed towards the different – uh demographic i mean right now i guess uh may's living rent-free in her head if that counts
0: yeah, that's true i i'm just waiting for somebody to go up to the replicator and order an avocado toast well, listen uh the fact
1: that number one gets by with a burger and fries without it getting her getting you know judged by the replicator as it did last season i think is a miracle
0: yeah well the replicator doesn't know number one's life <laughs> That's true. She's a guest on the ship. So it's like, okay, maybe I'll just stay out of it. But, you know, Tilly comes in every day. They kind of get to know her habits. But it's like, oh, well, it's Rebecca Romaine. She probably knows what she's doing.
1: Exactly. And and she can also respond by being like, look, I've been through a bunch of stuff. Okay, just give this to me,
0: please. Yes. So can we talk about the five-minute cameo of number one here? Do we think we're going to see more of her? Because I feel like you're wasting Rebecca Romaine if we don't. I
1: I have to feel like it is, especially if I'm assuming if Pike's mission either becomes successful or something happens, he's going to eventually go back to the Enterprise, right? And with him will probably come number one. I would love to hear from you, Jess. I know you did a great job of sort of setting up who Pike was in the beginning of this season. Do you want to briefly set up? I mean, it'll be much briefer because we only get one episode of number one, but who... Number one was in the original series by comparison?
0: Um, sure, I can do that. Uh, number one, well, first of all, to understand number one, you have to understand how Star Trek originally got made. So there was a pilot created called The Cage, um, that featured Captain Pike and it featured his number one, uh, who only, never has a name, is only referred to as number one. And this pilot didn't get picked up, but the concept of Star Trek did. And we see footage from this pilot in subsequent episode of Star Trek, the original series that's in a story that's told in flashbacks. And so this is where we get to know number one, played by Majel Barrett, who ended up marrying Jean Roddenberry and who ended up playing many roles in the Star Trek universe going forward. She was the voice of the ship's computer and she was Loxana Troy. So you're going to see a lot of this actress in the future editions of the show, but For this one episode that became a, you know, flashback scenes in a two-parter, she is really the first officer on the Enterprise under Pike, and she's tough, she's pragmatic, she's a great sense of support for him, and it's a very progressive role. It's something that I think 1960s TV audiences may not have been fully ready to embrace, Mm -hmm. and so that may be one reason that we end up with Spock as kind of the right-hand man in the series that we got. So that's number one. And Rebecca Romaine is perfect casting if we're going to bring this character back.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. And I think it's also really fun bringing her in as well because this – and I think I talked about this last time I was on. But Discovery, more than any other Star Trek series, is really focusing on – the idea of uh, female empowerment and women in a position of leadership. And that was really focused on very interestingly last episode, particularly with Laurel's, uh, you know, dealing with the hassle that comes with biases against her gender in a very male centered society. And so it's fun to get sort of a a glimpse here where, like you said, I think those, uh, those qualities of Majel Barrett's performance make its way here into Rebecca remains. The fact that she is, You know, doing her own investigations, bypassing all this Federation protocol to look into what exactly is going on with Spock's file. Again, we get a smidge of Spock stuff here. But basically, I think it's the needles essentially moved a little bit in that they're saying, yeah, something is definitely up with his file. We don't think he actually killed anybody. Uh, Oh, there's his ship. Let's go find it. But I'm hopeful that they didn't just use her for five minutes here, considering that there is a bit of uh, there was a bit of advertising preseason about it. She hosted the New York Comic-Con panel, so I'd hope they'd use her more, not just scarf down burgers and fries and talk about cool things that she did off screen.
0: Yeah, and she literally was on that ship for five minutes. She beams aboard, she orders a cheeseburger, she hands off some files, and she leaves. I don't even think she touches the cheeseburger.
1: Th- the thing about this scene, though, is that it provides some really interesting both Easter eggs and, I guess, explanatory pieces as well. Uh, I guess the biggest one is that, you know, we know that Pike is not only captain of the Enterprise and pseudo-captain of the Discovery, he's eventually going to become a fleet captain. And I know it's been a big sticking point for Star Trek fans that, in the first season, they're like, wait a minute, why is Star Trek Discovery using all these holograms? This technology did not exist whatsoever in the original series, and aside from the fact that it 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 was filmed 50 years before this uh it seems like from what we're led to believe the reason why it doesn't show up in the original series is essentially pike is anti-hologram and i would assume not only did he institute to get torn out of the enterprise but again when he assumes the position of fleet captain you'd have to imagine he institutes those policies for the entire fleet as well and so that's the explanation the show is providing as to uh, why holograms no longer exist in the Star Trek universe after this point.
0: Well, I think it's more than fair that we get that explanation because it did look very Star Wars-y and it was distracting and seemed like it was kind of a technological leap that we weren't ready to make in this era. But I think if they're going to go there, they have to do that. And I like that they're also sort of doing that with the spore drive already because spore drive is – way more advanced than anything that anybody had a hundred years later in this universe. And there has to be a good reason not to use it. So I think we're going to be spending a lot of this season talking about all of those reasons. And one of those reasons is that you've angered this blob of dark matter and apparently caused a lot of ecological damage. And I love that we have to explain this and that we have to give a good reason that you flew a little too close to the sun and, Nobody, like not even the really, really bad people are talking about spores 100 years later.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think this show, either it was in their long term plan or they sort of use in two to be like, oh, crap, we introduced a bunch of stuff. Now we need to actually remember when we're taking place in the franchise. Uh, but yeah, so this episode, you know, as we mentioned before, that Reno and Stamets are able to drill into Tilly's head to get May to essentially talk with her voice. I don't necessarily know why Tilly was speaking with May's particular voice. You think the spore would just use Tilly's voice, but I guess they wanted to use some vocal overlay there. But essentially, uh, May is actually part of a series a species called the Jasep which live in the mycelial network and apparently they were just having a good old time until all these jumps that Disco was making introduced some sort of creature or some sort of monster. Uh, into their system that has essentially destroyed their ecosystem, and that just shatters uh because essentially, aside from Hugh, this spore drive was like his life's work. It was his child. And when he found out that his child, that he thought was the, his perfect angel, was essentially you know doing bad stuff behind his back, uh, it crushes his life's purpose.
0: Yeah, there's like a silent spring going on in the mycelial network.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, I think it provides some great reasoning as to, I don't know if he's going to shut it down now, but it provides at least a good reasoning as to why he's going to eventually shut it down because considering that he created this in the very first place and was just bragging to Jed Reno about the fact that, oh, this is perfect symbiosis. It doesn't cause any harm to anyone whatsoever. The fact that that is complete opposite of the case that he directly caused this ecology of living creatures to get destroyed uh definitely speaks volumes as to why, you know what, I'm just gonna take this jack out of my arm and we can uh destroy the nice little quarantine cube and be done with it.
0: Well, yeah, the whole point at the end of last season, they were like, well, we can't use this anymore because it's killing Stamets. And now he's so cavalier about it, like, oh, yeah, we got the spore drive ready to go in case we need to use it. And yeah, he was definitely being set up for a fall there. And I think there's no way that this spore drive thing doesn't end with him torpedoing it all himself.
1: Yeah, I mean, basically, Stamets' attitude this season is just when I thought I was out, they pull me back in. Uh, I mean, there could also be, in a different universe, you could have done a whole, like, addiction thing about Stamets wanting to jump into the Spore Drive and the fact that he saw Hugh there and how he doesn't necessarily want to go. I'm glad they went a less predictable route, but, I mean, it's also interesting, comparing back to another Short treks. I mean, there's a bit of an environmental message in Tilly's Short treks, which deals with, albeit a different species, but this idea of, like, Uh, You know, this creature who's connected with her planet so much that, you know, she feels like people are destroying it and by proxy destroying her. Uh, You know, I think Stamets definitely that reverberates with him, even though he doesn't necessarily know the situation. And it speaks a lot about the I would say, you know, if politics and faith are not. Uh, you know, are not the only tenets of Star Trek that have carried on through the years. Environmentalism is a huge one, considering the plot of Star Trek IV uh, and everything around it as well, in terms of you know <laughs> protecting the environment at all costs. Yep.
0: Yeah. Oh, P.S. Star Trek IV, another one of those, another one of those Star Trek episodes where. Something comes down and looks like it's going to kill everybody, but really just needs our help. Yeah,
1: exactly. Just the, a common misunderstanding is another big theme of Star
0: Trek. And they couldn't run that through the Universal Translator either.
1: No, unfortunately, they don't know those noises.
0: <laughs> no, and yet they were able to run the orbs screaming through the Universal Translator, and that was a thing that worked somehow.
1: Yeah, it's it's weird, like... Uh... Pulsating. I mean, I guess it was more communicating through like uh, strobe lights of ultraviolet light in Stamets' eyes. I, I'm still a bit confused about this. So basically, the was it that the orb got Saru sick, or was it that Saru is so empathic that he sensed the orb was sick and became sick himself?
0: I think it was. I think it was just that there was like a cataclysmic event that kicked off his process. It's sort of like, it's sort of like he experienced a shock to his system, and his body's like, oh, I guess that's like, it's like a a false spring, like if it gets really warm and like all the trees start budding in February.
1: Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, because, I mean, there's some really interesting parallels, obviously, between Saru and the Sphere. Both at least believe they're at their end. They both talk a lot about legacy. Saru even pleads to Pike during that standoff on the bridge, you know, like, don't. Leave this sphere, don't you know? Uh, the sphere can die knowing it will live on after it's gone. We can choose to fulfill our part in its des- destiny or simply let it fade away unremembered. And it speaks very much to Saru, you know, talking to Michael about his experience as a refugee and how he wanted to b- become a part of Starfleet to help the people who helped him and how he wants to create a legacy for the Kelpians as the first of his species to actually go into the stars. So, I mean, this was a big saru episode, and I did like how, you know, there is an out outside analog as well in this fear, which again further substantiates the claims that he's making as to like, stop, listen to this thing, I should know what it's going through.
0: Yeah, it's true. It was very elegant how those things paralleled each other, and a lot of times when you have a character coming to a big realization because of some small thing, it seems kind of forced, and this really did not to me.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think that it was a really great just sort of moment with all three of them arguing with each other. And you could say maybe Pike was a little two-dimensional this episode, but I understood where he was coming from. I think he was taking that analog of, these are, this other is villainized. I don't know what it wants. Uh, You know, they say, like, it's trying to send a message. He says, I know what the message is. I'm sending my reply. I think he's just, obviously wants to protect his ship, and when it's sending out these things and it's about to blow you sort of make assumptions as to what you need to do so i think all the characters were coming from very sensical places and it represents a standoff that's very pertinent in our culture today
0: It definitely does. This is a far cry from certain other shows that just sort of choose random characters and have them get assigned opposing sides of an argument um, for the sake of having conflict. I'm looking at you walking dead. Mm -hmm.
1: So now I guess the idea is, obviously, aside from all the the porn that they have now on their hard drives, we have, as we talked about, I think maybe not necessarily a new Saru in that we don't know exactly what he'll become – But it's Saru who basically realizes, oh, wow, the thing I was raised to believe has been a complete lie, which I think he was sort of toying with that idea in the short treks, as it were. He's like, hey, dad, uh, do we really need to believe in the great balance? So I think he was sort of already agnostic on the idea. But I mean, he spoke about it on this episode as well, uh, when then Lieutenant Georgiou told him that he was never allowed to return Do we think this is uh, the straw that's breaking the camel's back here? Do we think this might prompt his reason to go back to Kaminar to tell his people, essentially, you've been believing in a lie the entire time?
0: I think so. And I think he kind of – he's going to reach a point now where he doesn't believe anything anybody has told him. And he thinks he's got his truth for himself. And so I think that's how we get back to Kaminar.
1: Yeah, and I think that, again – It connects really nicely to this overarching theme of faith, particularly to the New Eden episode. I mean, essentially, Saru is like the people of New Eden, where they had lived their lives based on this mythology that was not true. And the question is, would you rather live peacefully in bliss or live conflicted with the truth? And that's essentially the conflict that Saru is facing right now. Does he break this order that he's been basically following by the book? For the past several years of his life. And keep his people in the dark. Or does he look out for their best interest. While simultaneously shattering the reality. They've been living under for hundreds of years.
0: Well it sounds to me like. We're going to get a whole episode. That's going to answer all of those questions. No, we're going to
1: get about 10 minutes of it. And the rest of it is just going to be all this
0: other stuff. That gets (laughs) thrown in. There's going to be like three other plots. Going on simultaneously. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. So before we wrap up, I wanted to throw everybody a little bit of administrative notes because you guys may have wondered what happened to Rob. And I want to assure you all that Rob is alive and well. He has no ill will towards Star Trek. He's just feeling a little overextended right now and wanted to take some time off and was more than happy to turn the reins over to Mike, who's doing a great job covering Star Trek for the Hollywood Reporter and Really knows his stuff in this arena. And of course, he's always enjoyed a joy to podcast with. So I'm happy to have Mike on board. And incidentally, I have to say, I'm happy to have Mike on board is the first time I've seamlessly worked in a Star Trek analogy to this, where both of these gentlemen, Rob, when he asked me to ask Mike, said, Will you see about beaming Mike aboard for the rest of the season? And when I asked Mike if you'd like to join me, he said, I will be happy to be your number one. And I was like, you guys are both bastards because those should have been mine. And it took me this long to work in my own Star <sighs> Trek analogy with this, but I'm very happy to have you on board as my number one.
1: I, I Mike. mean, I, uh, I think that just says we're all a bunch of big nerds, but I really appreciate that. I'm, I'm happy to be on as well. I, as you said, I have the pleasure of covering this the Hollywood Reporter, so it has me nice up and close to this really interesting season so far. I'm looking forward to really having the opportunity to talk with you and the community at large about this season. Again, there's a lot of interesting turning points in this episode alone. And don't worry, people. Rob was not swallowed by some sort of blob that was emitting spores to not make us realize that he was gone the entire time. He is alive and well and singing David Bowie
0: 24-7. I... Pretty sure that Rob is too big a nerd to know any songs by David Bowie.
1: <laughs> I think I think he knows a couple. Look, the Wandoffs might have built his repertoire when it comes to music. I don't know. That that might be something we need to ask him uh, off the air.
0: That's a fair point. We'll we'll get this pressing question onto his desk as soon as possible because Lord knows he has nothing better to do. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I want to thank everybody for tuning in to this madness. This space madness that is, like spore-induced hallucinations, coupled with uh, your threat ganglia falling off—it's all of that in one podcast. Yeah, whatever you whatever you do, don't look in the mirror. Your head will appear all
1: big, or you'll start repeating yourself. Uh, I will say, Discovery does a really interesting. Has been doing interesting things this season with people tripping out between like all the weird May stuff with like her repeating herself at different angles, or the uh, when Stamets and Jet Reno are tripping balls. From the uh, from the spores that have been released, like they're really futzing with the visual aspects of it, which is getting an opportunity for them to take advantage of the technological jumps that have happened between uh, you know the halcyon days of Star Trek and now.
0: Yeah, well, you're forgetting Tilly having to take E at the end of last episode at uh, last season.
1: Yeah, all right, <laughs> that's that's I forgot about that. Yes, with uh with Clint Howard making an appearance.
0: Yeah, more balls are tripped in Star Trek Discovery than in like the whole of the rest of Star Trek.
1: I mean, look, uh, I'd rather have that than Denise Crosby sit me down and talk to me about how b- bad drugs are like she does in the beginning of Star Trek Next Generation.
0: <laughs> that, that is true. I mean, I think I think the message has evolved somewhat since those halcyon days.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it's gone um, from drugs are
0: bad to like, hey, you know what,
1: they're, they're manageable as long as you stay on track.
0: Yeah, you, ju- you can experiment. Just make sure they don't take over your life.
1: Again, I think we're, this is definitely speaking as yes to, the, to the people that are in the writer's room for the show.
0: <laughs> Once again, you are correct. <laughs> <laughs> so we love to hear from you guys. Uh, you guys and gals and Saurians and Barzans and – people who may or may not be robots, please leave us comments um, on PostShowRecaps.com. Find the thread for the episode. That's an easy way to leave a long comment, which I'm sure you've got a lot to say. You can also tweet at us. You can tweet at recaps. You can tweet at me. I am at Hattie,
1: And I am at a Mike Bloom type. You can go to a THR.com slash Star Trek Discovery if you want to Check out all the weekly stuff that I'm doing in terms of disco coverage, and I'm excited to to move forward with you. I've got a burger and fries at the ready. Is there anything you
0: can tell us about um, any upcoming coverage you've got?
1: Episode five, uh, th- there's going to be some big stuff going on. I know I, I pro- you could probably say that about each and every episode, but I'm particularly excited to talk with you about that one. It's uh, It's a doozy.
0: All right. Well, I'm very intrigued. So I'm very much looking forward to doing this again next week. And we hope we'll hear from all of you. So thanks for tuning in and see you next week.
1: Special thanks to our friends over at True Car for sponsoring this episode of Post Show Recaps. Every car comes with its share of stories: that ding in your bumper when you nervously picked up your first date, that luxury package you got after that big promotion, or the miles you saved by riding your bike all summer long. Now, while you can't put a price tag on your stories, now with True Car, you can at least find out what your car is worth when it's time to sell it or trade it in. Just go to True Car and simply enter your license plate number and watch how your car's details pop up. Then just answer a few questions like navigation and moonroof. They will bump up your car's value high mileage you already knew was going to cost you but now you can find out how much it's going to ding your wallet so you can plan ahead and once you're finished you'll get a true cash offer sent in minutes which you could take to a local certified dealer so you could cash out or trade in so when you're ready to experience a better way to sell or trade in your car check out true car today true cash offer not available in all areas